Well, now we'll get into the uh, Torah portion today. We'll start with the traditional prayer, Baruch Atah Adonai, Elheinu Melech HaOlam, Ashir Kachana, B'Mitzvotah, B'Tzivana, La'asok, B'Dibrei Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in Torah. I'm going to start today's uh, Torah thoughts, or my thoughts on the Torah, with a bluff, a B-L-U-F. It's called a bluff. It means bottom line, up front. I don't usually do that, but I want to tell you where we're going because today it's going to be sort of a scholastic approach, pretty much. So the readings, the bluff right now, the readings touch on Passover, one of the readings touch on Passover, which is coming up in two weeks. There are other readings in there about the clean and unclean and how that status relates to us and how gossip and slander are addressed in the scriptures for this week bluff because like I said or I gave you that bluff because I said this is a little bit scholastic in nature and we need a background to understand how this all works together and so I want to tell you where we're going so that you don't get lost while I'm on the way there although I think it's pretty straightforward Leviticus also uh, because of the way Leviticus is reading I think a little background is necessary for those readings to make them relevant today Leviticus is an interesting book and I'll get to that in a minute the Torah portion for this uh, week is Tazria, and that means she conceives. The readings are Leviticus 12, 1, 13 uh, through 13, 59, Numbers 28, 9 through 15, Exodus 12, 1 through 20, Ezekiel 45, uh, 45, 16 through 46, 18, and John 6, 8 through 13. So I'll start with the Exodus. That's the easy one. You'll find it very familiar. I discussed this story some months ago. It's now an ancient, it's now ancient history, but it's a story that is to be remembered till the end of time, and that is the Passover. I hope you all have given some thought to the Passover because it's going to start in two weeks. I know sometimes it seems like that's a lot of work, getting ready for the Passover, but have Passover, but having people join you family and friends to observe this important appointed time is important and I think rewarding. I'm not going to recount the story now but only point out maybe a few things about Passover that might make your Passover a little more interesting. So some fun facts about Passover. Did you know that except for Shabbat Passover is mentioned more than any other date of remembrance? over a hundred times in the complete Bible and 35 times alone in the New Testament. There's just a few important things that I'm sure will you'll call the memory that happened during the week of Passover. Yeshua first preached at age 12. He cleansed, he cleansed the temple of sellers and money changers. During this time he predicted he would rise in three days. He feeds the 5,000. He's anointed with perfume. He washes the feet of his disciples. Peter denies him three times. And Peter is also saved from prison by an angel. The Last Supper, of course, you know, is Passover. Yeshua is identified as the Passover lamb, and that's important. And if you want to see that for yourself, that's in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. 
And of course, there's the crucifixion. The Bible was given to us with really one overarching goal, and that is our salvation. If the primary object of the Bible is to point the way to salvation, then I think it is important for us to consider and remind ourselves of that gift and how it was obtained during the first Passover. Yeshua directed then in his time that we drink the Passover wine and the Passover matzah in remembrance of him. And that is an important point, and that point can be found in Luke 22, 17 through 22. As many of you know, this Holy Day of observance was key to my personal recognizing of Yeshua as our, as my, sacrificial lamb. That through his perfect sacrifice, a path to salvation for all had been opened. It was through Passover and my wife's loving help, reflecting his love in her actions, not just to words, that illuminated that path for me. This understanding connected to Passover was a critical moment in my life. I hope Passover will have deep meaning for you also coming up in the next two weeks. Remembering such moments are important. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with Jacques Cousteau. I used to watch him as a kid growing up. He was, used to dive underwater. He had underwater movies. He's the reason I became a certified diver and dragged my diving gear as I traveled around the world. In his book, The Silent World, he writes a very insightful point. I like his wordings, and it relates to how Passover affected me. For him, it lied about the world under the surface of the ocean. But I think the way he says it and the words he used highlighted the points or can highlight any point of discovery in our low life, in our own lives, important discoveries in our own lives. And this is what he wrote. Sometimes we are lucky enough to know that our lives have changed and been changed, to discard the old, embrace the new, and run headlong down an immutable course. A life changed, discarding the old, embracing the new, and then running down this new, immutable course. I think that's a nice way to put it. And that happened to me with Passover, when my eyes were open. I'll just hit one more point of interest before I leave and start into the rest of the Torah uh, portion this week. And that is, did you ever wonder why you know, it's depicted that Yeshua, he had a spear thrust into his side. It was typical of the Romans of the day to break the bones, the legs of uh, people who were crucified to ensure death followed quickly. If that hadn't happened and, it, and Yeshua's legs had been broken, then we may have had to look back and say he was not the sacrificial lamb. If you look back in the Old Testament, you'll find that the Passover lamb is not to have any bones broken. And that point is in Exodus 12, 46. So in any case, I thought that was an interesting point, and I hope that you can take time to read the Exodus portion this week as you prepare for your upcoming Passover. So now let's get into the other readings. 
more challenging readings. The readings this uh, week is called or entitled Tazria, She Conceived. This week's portion, as well as many others that we will cover in Leviticus, can be, I think, very difficult to put in perspective today. It seems to me that the book of Leviticus kind of stands alone in this. So let's take a moment to examine that book so that we can get a context for what we're going to learn from it. It is the shortest book of the five books of Moses. And as you know, it's smack in the middle. In your readings this year so far, you've already finished two books, and there are two books to come when we, when we have completed Leviticus. You have experienced the wonders of Genesis, the beauty and astounding process of creation, and then the Exodus, often called the greatest story in the Torah, the magnitude of a people's suffering and their leap of faith, the start of a Jewish nation set apart. Great books and movies have been done on these themes. They flow as they read, and actually the timelines move along fairly quickly. And then we come to Leviticus. It's almost a seeming pause in the flow of this essential narrative that defines a people and defines us now as recipients of this legacy and responsibility. This loving and faith-based relationship we have with our Creator. So in this pause, we examine the precepts and trappings involved in the godly directed rituals that support our history and our faith. It can seem a little dry, mostly dealing with laws that are focused on areas that may not seem relatable or even applicable in the modern world we live in, so distance from the world in which they were framed. This can lead us to an important conundrum, I think. What do we do with the readings in Leviticus? Certainly, this week readings start with a, actually right from the get-go, with maybe what many would consider a particularly unenlightened statement or a few verses. But it is the Word of God. Can we or even should we entertain thoughts of just ignoring it? Well, maybe if you're a lawyer, Leviticus will hold some interest because it has many legislative points dealing with judicial probity, which means moral honesty principles, how a temple was to be run, the importance of charity and how that is accomplished in an agrarian society. It also lays out in minute detail how to properly choose and sacrifice animals, that we should what we should and should not eat, <clears throat> even how to conduct some of the most intimate moments of our life. These are all laid out in Leviticus. For the most part, they're laid out in a dry, specific, or maybe a better word, precise language. Well, <clears throat> in looking over what Leviticus gives us, and at least making a little effort at some sort of reductive thinking here, I have boiled this down to a basic notion or theme for this week's portion. And that is separation of the clean from unclean and gossip and slander. If you have ever celebrated Havdalah at the end of Shabbat, 
then you know this theme of separation. On Havdalah we pray, light and darkness, the difference that we can see, the difference between light and darkness, and we praise God for giving it. Six days in the seventh, the holy and the secular, what is clean and unclean, and the importance of not mixing those two together, what is clean and unclean. And this drives us to the point where we begin to address the ontological or fundamental nature that is the division between the creator and his creation. How we, the creation, can approach the creator, keeping in mind that Leviticus was written in the time before Yeshua, of course. Yeshua changed the vehicle of transition between the clean and the unclean but not the requirement for it. That requirement still stands for the full reconciliation and eternal existence in the presence of our God. So, let's start tearing it apart a little bit. First, what does it mean to be spiritually unclean? Is that an insult? Should it be considered an insult to be unclean? Does it mean you are less than someone who is ritually clean? No, I don't think it does. As I was considering this, how to express this point, I thought about boots. The boots I was issued, specifically the boots I was issued, and that I wore in the military. Those that I was issued for my deployment to the Gulf War, and there's a reason for that. I like those boots, they were good. But I didn't need them when I came back to the States. Not a whole lot of, there's a lot of sand here, but there's not a whole lot of desert here. And of course I don't need them when I went to sea on board ship. But they're good boots. Just took a little bit of time to get them on and off, but worth it. So I brought them home to use. However, if I wanted to come into the house in the interest of self-preservation, I would sit down and take them off because they were not clean and so did not belong in a clean house. There was nothing wrong with them. Had done nothing wrong. They had done nothing wrong, obviously. And in fact, had become, had become unacceptable footwear in a clean house by performing the very purpose they were made for. I could clean them to my wife's standard, but it would take some time and effort. So I always took them off when I came into the house, even if Kim was not there. Most of the time. All the time. <laughs> the point here being obvious, I hope, and that is that to be unclean is not always about having done something wrong. It can be for that reason, as you will see a little bit later on, but often not necessarily so. It is just the nature of the fallen world we live in. We cannot function fully in it and remain always clean. In fact, like in my example, you can become unclean for doing exactly what you were created and celebrated for. It's not a permanent state of being, but a transitory one that we all, without exception, pass through. It is a state of being we should want to be aware of because it does separate us. And even though it may be for a completely justifiable reason, 
we still want to shake off the uncleanliness in our lives of this world. To approach that which is holy, it is in cleanliness that we can approach the holy. But just like my boots, sometimes it takes a little effort to do and to prepare them. I think most of you know me, and I like to examine the elephant in the room when there is one. With that in mind, and what you've just heard, what I've read, and I talked about clean, cleanliness and uncleanliness for a very specific reason. We now come to chapter 12, and if you read it, then you'll know what elephant I'm talking about. The question that pops to mind is, why is there a difference in time in the unclean status of a mother between having a male and female child? Now, I thought I would just maybe skip over this because it's a difficult point, but that's chapter 12, and it starts right out. God said this to Moses. So instead, I spent quite a bit of time reading through my own books and then searching the internet for biblically sound research on this point. And after all that, and I did some considerable research and reading all week long, I arrived at what I think. And what I think is, I don't know. I know that's probably disappointing, but I got answers all over the map. And I went to sources that included commentary from some of the great Hebrew scholars of the past. The reasoning for this, if you went through all the answers, covered areas of, that were included biological, societal, religious, psychological. And one even said it was unfair to male children, which was interesting, I thought, because usually when people look at it, since it's a longer time for female children, they look at that as a negative. But one person put down that they felt it was unfair for male children because during this time, mothers are relieved of the many required ritual duties they typically must perform. So that time represents freedom to rest and to bond with their child. Some people believe, and I'm sure some of you probably think you understand why or have a clear vision of why you think that is, but Really, as I looked over all of it, there just is no consensus. No reliable consensus, anyway. However, it was not a loss. In reviewing the many reasons a person can become unclean, I did come away with an understanding that the number of days, whether it's 40 or 80 or 7 or any other number, does not reflect in any way on the severity or indicate in any way that it is based on some sort of weighted scale that would assign levels of uncleanliness. But instead, the time you spend there is based on the nature of the condition which brought you to that state. So in other words, there should be no association invented to indicate severity in uncleanliness based on the time it takes to move from uncleanliness to cleanliness. Longer does not mean worse. It only means a longer process was put in place to return to a ritually, a ritually clean state and return to the duties that require it. So hopefully that difference in time, you feel a little better with it, but we're still moving. This is also highlighted the fact that there is really no difference 
and what the new mother must do to return to her um, responsibilities that require ritual cleanliness. It doesn't matter if it's a male or a female child. It goes on to say that she must make the same burnt and sin offering in both cases. Hmm. Make the same burnt or sin offering. I get the feeling that if I could tell and you were standing in front of me, maybe the pulse of a few people is starting to go up. Why is there a necessity for a burnt or sin offering for the birth of a child no matter what? Why does the mother have to make this sin and burnt offering? Birth's a good thing, right? To be celebrated as it was. And as it should be. So even if you come to terms with the clean and unclean part, and the journey between the two, and sometimes the time difference, and the time does not discuss or have anything to do with severity, what's with the mother having to make this offering at all? Well, first, to answer that question, you have to know what the offerings are for. First, the burnt offering. Done all the time. Can happen for any reason. The priest did it all the time to approach the holy of holies. Happened monthly, long ago. It's for atonement in general. It is an acknowledgement of our sin nature and the fallen world in which we live. In the case of the mother, she has been away for a little while from her duties. So she is renewing her relationship with God. That offering is not a bad thing. It's the renewing of a relationship. And the sin offering, and this is important because there's a difference between a sin offering and sin. Sin can mean many things. Things you do on purpose, things you don't do on purpose. But the sin offering was for a specific thing. These were for sins that were committed in ignorance or unintentionally. Yeshua was our sin offering. Remember his words on the cross? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. So when might that have happened with the mother? That she might have done something or said something that she didn't do with forethought or she might have done it unintentionally. Well, if you think about it, and maybe before drugs and epidurals, probably during childbirth, the young mother may have less than wonderful thoughts of her husband or what she thought of the whole process. There might be an unintentional thought or two in there that maybe fall a little short of holy. So if we can assume that is true, and I think it probably is, having witnessed it myself, we can understand why the burnt offering and the sin offering. So this was all to fully rejoin the community in taking up your ritual responsibilities and ensuring in doing so you were spiritually prepared to do that. This is really sort of a joyous, a joyous occasion. It should not be confused with a guilt offering. And the only reason I touch on that, it's not really part of the readings this week, is just to make sure we are clear. The guilt offering is what was made for atonement of a purposeful sin. This is different in that the reason for it is repentance. It has the added requirement of asking for forgiveness from the person you have wronged. This is very different. Even if you truly repent, and ask God for forgiveness, you may not be released from the guilt you carry if you cannot make it right. In this case, if we have wronged someone, we should try to make it right if we can. 
and I'm sure now that you understand the difference, but I think the differences between those things were important and maybe gets to the point of why the mother after childbirth would have to do these two um, offerings, the burnt and the sin offering. So I think Leviticus, with this understanding, starts to become more applicable as we move into chapter 13, because now we move into an area where a rabbi assesses a person as clean or unclean. In this case, we are talking about being identified as clean and unclean or unclean based on a physical manifestation of a spiritual failing. This is not about leprosy. And this is important to understand because I'm pretty sure if you opened up your Bibles right now and read it, many of you would have um, this physical affliction, Tazerat, as discussed in chapter 13, You'll see it as, um, it'll be in English, it'll have be represented in leprosy, but that is not right. It is not leprosy. Now, I didn't come up with that observation myself. In a number of sources I went to, including the Bible I generally use when I do these studies, and I, is the Hebrew Bible, there's a footnote that highlights that modern-day scholars almost unanimously reject that Tazrat, which is what is used here, should be translated as leprosy at least for the condition as it was presented in the portions this week. The epidemiology alone just isn't consistent. So does this happen? Do we have times in the past where this has happened? You have a physical manifestation of a spiritual problem? An example we've seen about Miriam. That was Moses' sister. Remember, she had this affliction of Tazerat after she and Aaron criticized Moses for his choice of wife. That was in Numbers 12. Seen as a physical manifestation of a spiritual problem now makes more sense of that and makes more sense of what we're getting at today. And that's especially considering the following. Now, next week's portion, and I almost never do this, I like to stay right with the portions that we're on, but next week's portion is Metzora. And that actually is a continuation of this week's portion. And usually these two, these two portions are put together and you read them as one. It just happens to be this year is an unusual year and they're split apart. But there's something there that you need to understand to go back and understand what we're talking about in the portions for this week. Metzora means infected one. It also deals with being afflicted again with a physical manifestation of, because of a spiritual problem, which is relevant to continuing, like I said, in this week's portion. Metzora is connected, Hebrew, in, in Hebrew, is connected to Mosi Shemra, okay, and that is a, perti, a person who is guilty of slander or gossip, and this is where it all ties together. So if you follow that, there's a good level of concurrence in all the sources I read that Zatarat, Zara'at, excuse me, is the physical manifestation of the spiritual sin that we read about this week with slander and gossip. So, what are we talking about here is not a general illness that a doctor would normally be called to to examine and treat, but again, the physical manifestation of a spiritual problem. That would correctly fall under the duties of a rabbi, and that's exactly what we see for examination. It is consistent with the point that the rabbi examines but does not treat nor call for treatment, or even pray 
for a healing miracle. Instead, he sets a time. And that time is understood to be a time to reflect on what you've said or done, and then to repent of that and be reconciled again. This is different from how disease in general is to be viewed throughout the Bible, where treatment and compassion are called for. That type of disease is not an indicator of punishment or sin. I'd like to say that again. That kind of disease has nothing to do with punishment or sin, where you are actually sick. Now, zara'at is a general term, actually, that can cover all types of eruptions and discolorations of the skin, as well as can be seen manifested actually in inanimate objects. You'll see where it is applied to things, growths and things on walls, roofs, clothes. And the reason for that is in the absence of God, this is, the, this is what happens. Um, this is the indication that God is not there, that you are separated from, and in the house you're at, that house is separated from God. Now leprosy may fall under that broad heading at times, but it doesn't in this case. That's not readily apparent in the readings, and I know, like I said, this is a little bit scholastic in nature, but this has to do with having researched this carefully to try to make or try to understand. I believe everything in the Bible, there's something we can learn from today that's important for us today. And so this is why I studied so hard on that, to make sure I get some sort of idea of a message that I should get here that is applicable today. So yes, it took a minute to get here, but I think all that background that I just discussed was important to understand or grasp a solidly grounded lesson, as I said, applicable today. And in contrast to the effort to get here, the lesson is quite simple. I gave it to you in the bluff. Watch what you say and why you say something. And that is very relevant today. You can barely turn on the TV or any electronic device where the thoughts of others are shared and not hear something that rises to the level of gossip or slander. When you hear catchwords like some person or someone could be, or may result in, or possible charges, or so-called growing evidence, someone has accused someone. Those are small words placed around a headline usually that's to give you, I guess, give you an idea of what they want you to believe. And starts this process by which you start to believe something that really doesn't have any proof to it yet. The problem with that is, is that once you believe something that hasn't been proven yet or is not sure yet, you can start falling in, depending on what it is, into that area of slander or gossip, which the scriptures this week, reading with the understanding that I gave you from what I studied this week, point out is wrong. And it's all around us. Spiritually, slander and gossip hurts three, if not more, people. The one who shares it, the one who hears it, and the person that it's about. It is meant to isolate and divide. And today's verses say that it is a sin, and that is why you are separated from the community, if that's the sin that your physical manifestation indicates you have had, or you have made. You have been slanderous. You have um, so wheats of discord or seeds of discord in the community. 
And it's very easy to fall into that today, maybe more so than it was at the time these verses were actually written down. I say this all the time, and you've probably heard it from me before, but I, I think it bears repeating because it's really important in, I think, everybody's life, and that is that nature hates a vacuum, and it will always fill it with chaos. And that holds true for the vacuum of communication. When people don't communicate, they fill that vacuum with chaotic thoughts and chaotic ideas, and often that leads to gossip and slander. So how do we stop that in our lives? We ask questions, we go to people, and we talk to them. We communicate. That is true with open electronic communications. It's true with this temple. It's true with your friends. And it's often true in your family. Constructive criticism, questions on anything, the sharing of controversial ideas, they're all fine. And I think you know the difference. Tempting though it may be, the verses this week point out clearly that we should not gossip or slander. No one, not here, not your friends, not your family, or more. Instead, when we have questions, we should seek to understand and ask. <clears throat> I hope that all made sense to you. I know it's kind of a little bit different approach to how we usually give a sermon, and uh, I thought it was important to get a lot of background in here so that this makes sense, but this is more useful than just here. As you move through Leviticus and you talk about the different laws, what you've learned today and what you keep hold on to today is probably will help you. It'll be applicable as you move through it. Leviticus can be a little bit hard to understand and to apply today, daily life. But it ended up being, at first I was a little bit worried about this particular message, but it ended up being enjoyable. I enjoyed the research on it. I hope you had fun with it too. I enjoyed preparing it for you. I'll finish off with a simple prayer for all of us. I pray with God's direction and through his sacrifice in Yeshua, whereby we are washed clean, in love that we can continue to always build and grow our relationships with our God, and that this relationship will fill us so much that our cup will runneth over and spill out to all those around us. That we can build like relationships based on our faith in Yeshua with those around us that are important in our lives. I pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. I will now close with Aaron's blessing. <clears throat> Yair Adonai, Panavalucha, Viachunecha. Yisa Adonai, Adonai, Panavalucha. Vayasem Lacha, Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make the light of his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. God bless you. Shabbat shalom and good night.